0: Paul reveals to us, the Christians, a declaration of freedom. In this chapter, he points out the spiritual freedoms we enjoy because of our union with Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is emphasized and mentioned at least 16 times in this text. In fact, the theme statement for our text could be 2 Corinthians 3.17, which states, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. We know that for the believer, there is a constant state of spiritual warfare that pits the flesh against the Spirit. The way we get victory in the Spirit is to be spiritually minded. As we yield to the Holy Spirit, we begin to experience true freedom only found by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, in our text for today, which is Romans 8, verses 1 through 17, Paul shows us our freedom in two specific areas. In verses 1 through 4, he shows us our freedom from judgment. And in verses 5 through 17, he shows us our freedom from defeat. First, we will see in verses 1 through 4 our freedom from judgment. So having seen in Romans chapter 6 verse 23 that the wages, the penalty, or the condemnation of our sin is eternal death or separation from Christ, and then in Romans 3:20 we saw by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. Paul goes on to tell us That for Christians, there will be no condemnation, no penalty, no sentencing, no punishment for the sins that believers have committed or will ever commit. So in verse 1, we see what is undoubtedly the most precious freedom we have in Christ. Verse 1 states, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Here, Paul is giving us the therefore of the no condemnation. It is the fact that those in Christ now have eternal security. Here we are shown that we have the assurance that those in Christ will never be ultimately condemned for their sin and subject to the eternal punishment of sin in hell as those who die in unbelief and are subject to. Notice the verse does not say there is no condemnation for those who make no mistakes, have no failures, or do incredibly good. Christians do fail. They make mistakes. And they they do not always do what's right. Think about it. Abraham lied about his wife. David committed adultery. And Peter tried to kill a man with a sword. What is important to see is this. A believer will suffer the consequences of his or her sin, but they will not suffer the eternal condemnation for their sins. So to be in Christ is in every way to be free from condemnation and judgment. Verse 2 tells us why there is no condemnation for believers. It is because we are free from the law of sin and death because the spirit of life in Jesus Christ has made us free. Having life in the Spirit is to move into a whole new sphere of life. In Romans 7, verses 7 to 25, Paul described the law of sin and death. But in Romans 8, he describes the law of the Spirit of life. For believers, the law no longer has any jurisdiction over us. We are dead to it, as we're told in Romans 7, 4. And we are free from it, as we're told in Romans 8, 2. As believers, we will never be judged by the law of sin and death. This is the greatest freedom we could ever get. The Spirit has replaced the law that only produced sin and death. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 5, with a new simple law that produces life. Think of how the world seeks to gain freedom, maybe through jobs, with money, status, power, even teens actually try to seek freedom by living ho- leaving home. But all those things still keep a man under condemnation and subject to ultimate condemnation of sin. So let's look at verse 3. The law could never save us, only condemn us. Because of unregenerate men, the law was powerless to produce righteousness. In Christ, though, it cannot condemn us because Christ has already suffered that condemnation for us on the cross. Christ did for us what the law could not do. And notice verse 3 does not say Jesus came in sinful flesh to accomplish this. That would make him a sinner just like us. Rather, he came in the likeness of sinful flesh as a man. Although in his incarnation Christ became fully man... He took only the outward appearance of the sinful flesh because he was completely without sin. He was our sin offering. Jesus, who became the God-man so that he could die as an offering for our sin so that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Verse 4, notice that we do not fulfill the law, but that it might be fulfilled in us. We are passive while God is active. The point is this. God does not give us human power to overcome sin. If that were the case, then we would be self-righteous and self-sufficient. Rather, God indwells us through the power of the Holy Spirit and through him. We overcome sin as we yield to him. The Spirit is the active agent in overcoming sin in your life, not you. If we could overcome sin on our own, then Jesus would have gone to the cross in vain. And why did God do it this way? To make you and I cling to him moment by moment and hour by hour. God alone gets the glory and the honor. 1 Corinthians 1, 31 sums this up when Paul says, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Jesus took away the law's ability to bring judgment to us by giving us the Holy Spirit in place of the flesh. The spirit-led Christian who yields to the Lord is, experiences the sanctifying work of the Spirit in his or her life. God sets the standard of righteousness for us, and it is only him who can accomplish that righteousness in us. And what a blessing to know that God alone fulfills the requirement of his holy law in our lives. So let me ask you, are you trying to live life in your own strength? Is there a part of you that thinks you must do something to stay in God's favor? Ladies, in the spirit, you have been set free. Don't live as one under condemnation and judgment. Live as one who has been set free. And let that gratitude be the motivation for living a righteous life. Remember, as well, that your liberty is what frees you from this world and the condemnation, that condemnation that sin brings. Stop setting your own conditions for assurance. Jesus fulfilled all the requirements of the law on your behalf. In Christ, you have been given a declaration of freedom. It is now Christ who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure, which we see in Philippians 2.3. So having seen that we are free from eternal judgment... We now want to see we're also free from defeat. We see this in verses 5 through 17. First, in verses 5 through 13, Paul shows the difference between worship in the flesh or to the systems of men versus our worship in the spirit or to the true and living God. In verse 5, Paul contrasts between those who set their minds on the flesh, which are unbelievers, and those who set their minds on the spirit, which are believers. Ladies, have you ever set your mind on something, something you desire or you want to accomplish? You put all your energy, focus, and action into getting this accomplished? You may even ignore some of your duties, like your family or your jobs. You do whatever it takes to accomplish your goal. Well, this is what Paul is saying when we set our minds on the flesh or on the spirit, that is how we live our lives with that same passion of wanting to accomplish something. We either seek after those things of the world fulfilling our pleasures, or we seek after God fulfilling his will and his glory. The unsaved do not have the spirit of God, and so they live in the flesh for the flesh. In contrast, no believer is in the flesh. This is an impossibility. The flesh may remain in a believer, but it is impossible for a believer to remain in the flesh. And certainly Paul is not saying that an unsaved person never does anything good, nor is he saying that a believer never does anything wrong. But what he means is that the bent, the focus of their lives is different. The unsaved set their minds on the flesh. And in the Greek, the word mind literally means to go earnestly in one direction or to interest oneself with concern or obedience. Paul is saying here that for a believer to remain in the flesh would mean total obedience to the flesh in mind and body without any options. But being indwelt by the Holy Spirit makes this impossible. When a person is truly born again, God sets his or her course in a new direction. So Paul continues in verses 6 through 9, contrasting between the spirit, uh, in the spirit to be in the flesh, sorry, contrast being in the spirit to being in the flesh. So what does that look like to be carnally minded? My Bible says carnal minded. I'm not sure yours might have a different translation or to be in the flesh. Verse 6a states, it's death. And Paul is not saying that the mind set on the flesh leads to death, but rather that it is death. The person with their mind set on the flesh, the carnal mind, is spiritually dead. And because of that, the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Even the good deeds unbelievers perform are not truly a fulfillment of God's law because they are produced by the flesh for selfish reasons and from a heart that is in rebellion. So then, those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. And if the fleshly mind does not and cannot subject itself to the law of God, then those who are in the flesh, they cannot please God. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. Paul points out why this thinking is so dangerous. The mind set on the flesh is death. Regardless if a person is moral, religious, or really nice, if they lack the spirit of life found only in Christ Jesus, they are lost and under condemnation. Although unsaved people, unsaved nice people don't appear to be hostile towards God, verse 7 tells us, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. They may even talk with reverence towards God, but every unbeliever is hostile towards God and in enmity with him. An enmity here is a Greek word meaning a reason for opposition, So the unbeliever's niceness and goodness doesn't flow from the spirit of God, but from the flesh. No matter how good things look on the outside, their minds are set on fleshly things, which ultimately lead to God's uh, opposition of God's law and to spiritual death. And this is why Paul says at the end of verse 9, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. For unbelievers, the thought is not how to please God, but rather how to please and gratify the flesh. There's no sensitivity to God and his word, is nor is there a desire to obey him. Whatever righteousness an unbeliever may show, it is a futile righteousness that will never be of any merit before God on Judgment Day. So apart from Christ, the condemnation of sin can never be defeated. But the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. This is a spiritual peace. It's a peace with God. Those who belong to God are concerned about godly things. The person with his mind set on the things of the Spirit is spiritually alive and at peace with God. Those who walk according to the Spirit, their lifestyle, habits of living, and thinking manifest the fruits of the Spirit which are love, joy, peace, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. So starting in verse 10, Paul now explains how believers are free from defeat when it comes to the condemnation of the flesh. Paul says the body is dead because of sin. Understand, the body is not dead because Christ is in you. It's dead in spite of that fact. Our mortal flesh is just that mortal. The body is destined to die regardless of whether you are saved or not. This is the curse that was brought brought to man back in the Garden of Eden. But because Christ is in you, what about the Spirit? The Spirit is life because of righteousness. And so what is Paul teaching here? Simply that the body we live in is not yet redeemed in the final sense. It is still subject to sickness and death. But if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, even though your body is dead, your spirit is not. The Spirit is that newness of life in you. And because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, your body becomes the very temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6 says, 19 through 20 states, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Even though our mortal flesh is destined to die, the Spirit gives life to our bodies, so that with them we may serve God. When we die, our bodies will someday be raised from the dead, because we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. But if you want an abundant life in Christ now, it's not enough for us to have the Spirit. The Spirit must have us. We look at verses 12 through 13 that says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Remember, it is the Spirit of God that convicted us, revealed Christ to us, and imparted eternal life to us when we trusted in Christ. Because he is the Spirit of life, he can enable us to be more like Christ. Yet, in another sense, the Holy Spirit is also the Spirit of death. Paul says in verses 13, uh, 13b that if you live according to the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit then enables us to put to death, to mortify the sinful deeds of the body. Romans 6, 11 through 13 describes this perfectly, and it reads So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members as God, as instruments for righteousness. As we yield the members of our body to the spirit, he applies the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ in us to us. God puts to death the things of the flesh and reproduces the things of the spirit. So Christians walk after the spirit. Non-Christians walk after the flesh. For believers, the incapacity to walk after the spirit is removed. So how can you be free from defeat? By relying on the divine grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put every area of your life in his hands. He alone... Can set your mind, heart, and will on the things of the Spirit. And He alone will help you to put to death the things of the flesh. In verses 14 to 16, we see the wonderful assurance of the believer's intimate and permanent relationship to God as a beloved child. In verse 14, Paul says that to be the true Son of God, you must be led by the Spirit of God. And notice it is the Spirit that does the leading. The verb led is in the present tense and is in its passive meaning. A literal translation would read, as many as allow themselves to be led. It carries the idea of willing, being willing to be led. As we yield to the spirit, he guides us. Again, being led by the spirit does not imply sinless perfection, we all sin and fall short of the glory of God, but it means the thrust of a believer's life is to repent of sin and to follow God. Remember back in verses 5 through 13, we stated that the direction again of one's life is different between a believer and a non-believer. One set their mind on the flesh and other the other on things of the spirit. So I'm going to skip over verse 15 for a moment and have you look at verse 16, which reads, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So notice here we are also called the children of God. In verse 14, the Holy Spirit control and direction assures the believer's privileges in God's family as a son And the word son in the Greek actually refers to a child mature enough to take one on adults' family privileges and responsibilities. In verse 16, however, the Holy Spirit's indwelling points to the believer's birth relationship to God. And children here is a Greek word meaning born ones. So the important distinction here is that being children of God shows us the relationship we have with God through our new birth, while being sons of God shows us our privileges in God's family as we're under the control and direction of the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, going back to now verse 15, we see we have received a spirit of adoption. Contrary. Contrary to the spirit of uh, bondage leading to fear, where the unbeliever is a slave to their fear of death and their final punishment, believers are given the spirit of adoption. And this is not primarily a reference to the transaction which God adopts us, but to a spirit-produced awareness of the rich reality that God has made us his children, enabling us to come before him without fear or hesitation as our beloved father. Let's look at what it practically means to be an adopted son of God. So adoption is a Greek word meaning the placing of an adult son. This means that although we came into God's family through birth or being born again, we were instantly adopted by God and immediately given the position of an adult son. Now, baby can't walk, can't make decisions, can't speak or draw upon family wealth, but as new born-again believers, we gain instant adult status before God, and we are given full adult privileges. This is incredible to think about. We don't earn it, work for it, or get it conditionally. The second we truly come to Christ, we are full-fledged members of God's family and legitimate sons who are eternally secure in our status. It's interesting to note that in New Testament times, adopted sons enjoyed the same privileges and rights as natural-born sons. So think of the significance of this. This means God is giving us the same privileges as his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Timothy 2.12, we read, If we endure, we shall also reign with him. In Revelation 26, John states, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Not only does God grant us these privileges as adopted sons and daughters, but he allows us to approach him in an intimate way. Paul says we cry out, Abba, Father. And the word Abba is a term of endearment. It is a soft, tender word meaning daddy or papa. It embraces the fullness of God's love and tender care for us. While we should always approach him with reverence, we never want to forget that God wants an intimate, loving relationship with us. So we never have to approach God with fear or terror. How amazing is that we were created in God's image can know the affection of our Creator, and can cry out to Him, Abba, Father. As adopted sons and daughters, we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. In verse 17, we see that as children of God, we become partakers of His inheritance. As this word is used in Scripture, it implies that to be an heir or to possess something by inheritance was much more secure than than anything obtained by purchase or trade. So the Greek meaning here is that an heir has the right, the certainty, and the inalienable character of possession. As heirs of God, Paul implies that we are heirs through our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. We are heirs because of God's promise, not our own. Our eternal security as an heir has nothing to do with this world it is the good of which Christ himself is a participant. As heirs in Matthew 25, 21, we read, Enter into the joy of your master. In Revelation 3:21, John states, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So notice also the conjunction if. In verse 17, anytime you see the conjunction if, it means something is conditional. So what Paul tells us that is conditional here is that if we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, it is unavoidable and necessary that we suffer with him in order to be glorified with him. And the phrase if indeed uses the word if to mean fact. It does not mean a possibility, but it means actuality. If you are an heir of God, it is a fact that you will share in his sufferings. Because his present world system is under the reign of Satan and despises God, they also despise God's people. It's inevitable that we will suffer persecution just as Christ did, giving proof that we truly belong to him. We can expect the same resentment from the world That Jesus received, but suffering is never wasted and it has a purpose. Many Christians think we suffer because we have to satisfy the demands of God's justice or pay for our sins, but nothing could be further from the truth. We suffer to prepare ourselves to participate in his glory. For creatures like us, we are in a state of sin. Suffering is a necessary condition of exaltation. It is the refining process through which we must pass. In First Peter, uh, Peter 1, 6 through 7, we read, In this, which is our salvation, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by the various trials, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God puts us through suffering to refine us, to build endurance and strength, and he builds these things in us to prepare us for the exalted future state of glory. But we only attain this through much trial and endurance. Therefore, we do not participate in God's glory because we have suffered. Our participation with Christ is not our reward because we have suffered. We suffer to be purified and readied for our future state of glory. And thus we are free from defeat because in Christ we are more than conquerors. Freedom from judgment and freedom from defeat These are the powerful declarations of all who have put their faith and trust in Christ. Truly, ladies, if you abide in God's word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we can have freedom from judgment when we have put our faith and trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, and that we can have freedom from defeat because We have the Holy Spirit guiding and directing us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Thank you for our assurance of our salvation in that you allow trials in our lives to show your great love for us, refining us and preparing us to reign in glory with you. Help us this day to honor and glorify you through all that we say and all that we do. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen.